0: And welcome, everybody, to another Bangers and Classics podcast, uh, which uh, has me, uh, James Ruppert, in it, and him, David Malloy. And uh, let's find out what uh, David's been up to in the past week or so.
1: Oh, loads of DIY, James. Absolutely loads of DIY. Hardly been out of the house. And uh, sadly, I have seen absolutely no interesting cars anywhere. It's really, really quite shocking. Only thing of note I can say uh, is yesterday, that's the 29th of July, is the first anniversary of me publishing my first ever book. It was uh, an ebook, book And now um, yeah, was kind of a noteworthy day. We'll admit of having had a couple of small glasses of beer yesterday evening in celebration. But um, what I would say to listeners is if you're thinking of doing something, something you've always wanted to do, do it. You'll know, Give it a shot. Because you might find it's easier than you think uh, once you get past the initial sort of inertia and initial reticence at doing it. So just bear that in mind. If you want to do something really badly,
0: do it. What's the worst that can happen? Well, I don't know. I think there are probably some fairly terrible things that can happen, David. But uh, <laughs> if we can do it, if we can have a go at things, um, every, everybody can. Yeah. There you go. There's our, there's our positive message for today.
1: Well, I mean, Dr Pepper, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? That, exactly.
0: That's
1: said They say so, so it must be true. Anyway, Yes. So the Nations Cup will be up. Um, by the time we read this we should be into the semi-finals, uh, but we're just about to put that up on the, the website today. Um, having lost control of the bangers and classic Twitter account yesterday evening for reasons beyond my comprehension, and I suspect it's been a bit of a mess up uh, at, back at Twitter HQ, but never mind, uh, we are there now. And there's one other thing I should I think we should mention. Um, I did say on recently that bangers and classic are going to embark on a quest and we are going to do that James aren't we we're going to look for something that was lost a long time ago it's we certainly just, yep, it's disappeared from sight using uh, technology uh, including something that floats and that's a bit of a clue there we're going to try and find it before the summer is out uh, we're not going to say too much about it just now uh, just in case um <laughs> it all falls apart and we end up having to take to the life rafts
0: well i'm sure it won't
1: come to that david <laughs> uh, <laughs> James, every boat I've ever been on has been dive bombed or torpedoed, and two of them were in peacetime.
0: Really? No. Yeah. Well, I, well, I've always, I've always got my 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 water wings on, so uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be keeping those on, um, and yeah. I might even put them on my legs as well.
1: Yeah, you got to be careful. We don't want to trade those in for a different kind of wings, obviously. No, of course not. Yeah,
0: no, but there we go. Anyway, enough
1: of my nonsense. What about you? What cars have you? Eaten? What have you been up to um, in this last seven days?
0: Well, everybody. Be really pleased to hear that uh, i have actually found uh, uh, the baby shark the old uh, e21 um, yeah um it it is apparently all okay to be mot but the only thing is is that it needs um it does need an exhaust and the and the disappointing thing is obviously i i discussed all this with the garage and uh, obviously they've got more important things to do because the boat said well you can have it back later on today if you can get me a uh, an exhaust because uh, he <laughs> said i can't i can't find one <laughs> so i thought oh well, that's good um so uh i've been on a quest uh, david uh, a quest around the world and you you'd think it'd be fairly straightforward to find uh you know a piece of uh, metal uh tubular shaped uh, that will go from one end of the car to another but apparently not uh for a car that's uh, over 40 years old now um and so i'm i'm actually dealing with uh people in poland um and uh, i bought uh, a back box and a middle box and uh, those are on a, on their way to us so uh, let's hope um it makes it to us um, i should get them at the end of next week and then they can be uh, welded on board comes um but uh, yeah and uh, it, it, you know ov- obviously this will help in our, in our quest because mm. um, how how could i possibly help you in any way david if i didn't have access to um, that sort of set, set of wheels but uh, yeah hopefully um it will all Come together at some stage, but it's taking rather longer than mm. uh, uh, I originally planned for. Because I could have ordered this last week when I was talking to you about uh, things, but never mind. Yeah. Uh, in between, actually, I know I've seen some spectacular classics in the last few weeks. You know, some you know top draw A one um, uh, gold plated uh, classics. But actually, I've seen some quite nice bangers, um, mm. and uh, these are probably ones that we will we will have to debate at some point because people will obviously clamour for that for uh, a right. definitive view. But uh, a Rover 600, uh, which I know is is basically a Honda banger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was but again it's it's one of those vehicles that um isn't isn't cherished and it is used um a relative of ours had one and they basically you know ran it into the ground it did obviously rust rust away that that was the reason why uh, you know they they did have to uh get rid of it but it really was a spectacular car it was impossible to kill and all you did was service it and uh change the you know uh, hmm. uh, the brake pads and it just ran and ran and ran and yeah, I saw a tidy one in the car park, and you think, yeah, that's quite a nice, smart-looking car, isn't it? It is actually. Uh, yeah, to be fair, yeah, it is. To be fair, yeah. And uh, I was followed the other day um, by um, a full Puma, um, which are starting to become sort of quite quite rare. You used to see them everywhere, yeah, and now they're beca- they are actually becoming uh, quite quite hard to see. And uh, I know not everybody likes them, but uh, if you've ever driven one, um, they're actually. huge amount of fun Mm, Uh, you can still still pick them up for a few hundred quid uh this one looked quite tidy again it's another another one of those that can be uh killed by rust yeah uh um but uh again i've had uh again friends and uh people in the family who have just ran ran them forever because they were just you know fun fun to drive uh very very cheap to run and uh, yeah, it was it, it was hard to think of uh, anything else which would be a better value. So it was just quite nice to see one because I did think to myself, "When was the last time I saw one?" And it, it was quite some time ago. So yeah, I'm you know, as well as looking out for classics, I'm always looking out for bangers.
1: Right. I mean, the, the Puma um, it tends to be the rear wheel arches that go there. That's the yeah. That's usually the dreaded sign. Mm. But of course, you've also got, you've got the standard Puma, and then you've got the Ford Racing Puma. Uh, which is an absolute it's a honey of a car, it really mm. is a fantastic little thing. The, the standard trim is very good, I'll be honest, when it came out I saw the advert, I thought there's absolutely no way Steve McQueen would be seen driving <laughs> like that <laughs> and I'm happy to say um, that I was completely and utterly wrong about that, it's a great little car and uh handles really well, it's very sharp and uh, I think Steve McQueen would have been quite happy that we love one, um, we'll never know, but no. uh, Unfortunately, but yeah, uh, they are good cars, not to be confused with the modern aberration that's called a Puma. Um, no, 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 no. But uh, yeah, the Puma is a great little car. Uh, if you find one at a decent price and it's reasonably free of rust, it's a car probably to buy, um, get properly rust protected. There are places that will do it and keep it, you know, because um, they are going to become fewer and fewer in number. Um, There's no question. I mean, there used to be a very common site and I can't remember the last time I saw one in the road around here.
0: Yeah. It used
1: to be everywhere, yeah. Mm. So we don't want that to happen because they are great little cars. So uh, save the Puma. So that's two That's two interesting classics. The 600, James, Yeah, it's a forgotten car, really, isn't it? It I mean, is, obviously, yeah. yeah. So. It's, obviously, there are legions, or, well, maybe not legions, but there are some Rover fans out there you know, Yeah, uh, who like modern Rovers. And... Obviously, they cherish the 600. But beyond that, it doesn't seem to have much of a following or no. for there to be much interest in it. And again, that's quite sad. Though I may have said it was a banger. That was just me being daft. It's, <laughs> it's current, Yeah, well, it was. I need to think about it. I didn't think there were bad cars back in the day. But they're better than 99% of what you get brand new nowadays, yeah. at least in terms of character. Very comfortable cars. And as you say, uh, the running gear, very, very reliable indeed. Yeah uh but let's talk now of car from rover that Mm. was shall we say a little bit less reliable because it's time for this week's banger or classic and we have gone with the rover sd1 car
0: that promised so much james what's your take on it it is a very difficult one because Mm. uh, uh in many ways yes it is a classic um and in other ways it it was a truly terrible car um uh, it just never lived up to ex- expectations. It wasn't terribly reliable. Uh, it was quite impressive as a, uh, uh, a traffic cop car. Um, they always seem to be good. There's a very good YouTube video, I think, aren't they um, taking a ET, the blood or a heart uh, from Stansted Airport? And actually, they go past somewhere where, where I used, used to live. Um, and they follow, uh, it's a very old film, obviously, it's from the 1980s. And you can see the car hair down the M11 and then drive into London. And uh, that's very impressive. And uh, that is uh, a Rover uh, 3.5 doing the business. So, yeah, I think if they were police ones, because uh, the police made sure that they were reliable. They looked after their cars very, very, very well, so you you never saw them broken down by the side of the road. But uh, the civilian ones, uh, you do think to yourself, uh, I don't know what was going on. I have a slight uh, thing where I was I, I was in the back of an SD one that my that my dad was going was going to buy, and uh, there was such a waiting list. And this was nineteen would have been nineteen seventy seven um there was such a waiting as they wanted 500 pounds from him <laughs> and he wasn't he wasn't going to pay that so that was just 500 pounds for the privilege of going to the front of the queue to buy uh, <laughs> an sd1 and even he knew nah, i really don't think that's uh, that's worth it you know you know basically go and buy a mini for that so uh, uh that was what you know bl uh, dealers were Want, want to do at the time but it was an impressive car to be in uh, in the back of um i do remember the uh uh the vitesse ones is what uh, people people like mm. the uh, twin plenum chambers and stuff like that and i suppose it, in their way they are they are classics and uh, i know that people uh, deliberately confuse them with um uh, ferraris um because the styling is very very similar um, but I, in a way, I I I'd probably quite con- controversially, quite quite like to say, nah, it's not a classic, uh, just to, <laughs> just to, <laughs> just to annoy people really, because uh, as you say, it promised a lot, um, it delivered something, but it didn't deliver everything. In in many ways, it should have been the new era, and uh, BL should have made a fortune and stuff like that. And that's all your money gone, there, David. That's my wedding it. ring. I was just boasting. Was it really? No, I was cleaning my wedding ring. That's quite. it's quite an impressive wedding ring. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's um, ah. yeah. made in Scotland from Gouders, you know. <laughs> oh,
0: fantastic! I'm
1: pleased to hear yeah, it's the old Iron yeah. yeah. So, what's, S-
0: what's 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 your view of, uh, on well, the old maybe, SD one?
1: I just wish they'd made the SD one from Gouders. It would have been a bit more. Robust. Yeah, it
0: would have been, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know. It was good enough to win the European Car of the Year title for 77 Mm. um, and made a big impact, you know, really in Britain and across Europe. People were really interested in buying one. And then, of course, the strikes happened. And you couldn't get one for love nor money. And that's possibly why the Leyland dealers uh, were charging a premium. Mm. Well, they couldn't get them. Um, There were stories of, certainly in the continent, people going to garages and the garages had no supply. Uh, They just could not get their hands on them. Mm. Um there was a programme to try and, you know, get as many out as they could, of course, then corners were cut and the build quality was pretty awful. And then they made what I think was a big mistake. They brought out the six cylinder versions, the twenty three hundred mm. and the twenty six hundred. And they were very problematic. Um needed a bit more work before we really and uh, the running gear before they were released and they didn't get it. So that really damaged its reputation. They did bring out a four cylinder version if I recall correctly as well. Um, which was a little bit underpowered for the size of car. But uh, the three-and-a-half-litre one was obviously the one to have. Uh, it did well, as you say, it was a police car. It did well in the touring cars as well. Um, hmm. you know, it was a good-looking car, a good-looking racing car as well. Um, I actually took some photographs of one not kill cool a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was a triplex colour. So maybe post a, a picture of that in the Bangers and Classic website because I've got it somewhere. Mm. Um and it was it was it was fun to watch being around a damp track. And the problem is the problem with the, the SD one is it really it failed to capitalise on its initial impact. It wasn't the fault of the car. The basic car was good, so, you know, dodgy six cylinder engines apart. Um it was a good design, good looking car, and should have done great things. But at the end of the day you have to say it was a wasted opportunity. It could have been so much more, so much more successful than it was. That said, I do like it. And I do think it's a classic, uh, so my vote goes to for classic in this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I don't. I don't think you're wrong, David. Uh, as you say, you've got to be very specific about the engine because there was actually uh, a two point four V M diesel, wasn't there? Uh, uh, no,
1: was it? Was it? Uh, hang on, was that not? Was that ever sold in this country? Uh, no, it did. Yeah, you're right. It yeah. came in. I think it came in very late in the day, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, because it wasn't available. I'll just check that as yeah. um, well. I'm sitting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I- yeah. I mean, I you are you are correct. If we're quite specific about the the characterful, you know, V8 uh, engine. Yeah, that's a classic. Whereas the others um, really didn't come up to uh, any sort of standard, really.
1: No, and that's a sad thing. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It came along later in life was the the 2400 turbo diesel and. Um, you know, really, they could have done with that back when it was launched, I think. It would, it would have helped a little bit, possibly. Mm. But anyway, as I say, it is, it's a classic. It may be a flawed classic, but it's a classic nonetheless. And the only sadness is that it really could have been so much more. We'll move on from that. I and mean, we shall take a quick break. You're listening to Bangers and Classics, the most irreverent podcast in human history. Welcome back. Uh, after talking about the ST1, which, uh, in certain guises, was quite a regal-looking car, Let's uh, talk now about classless cars. What car, would you say, James, defied being categorized to kind of counter-status?
0: So, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would go for the really obvious ones uh, because I own them. Um, uh, but that's not to say I'm classless, uh, David. Uh, you I are. always make a bit of a kerfuffle when I arrive uh, anywhere at all. You know, there's often a Russell. Uh, but, um, uh, <laughs> Is it the same uh, guy? Yeah. yeah this, this Russell um, fella? Yeah. <laughs> now I always make a bit of a stir whenever i arrive anywhere um but yeah what you could the, you the, the point that you're making, David, is, is yeah, there are there are certain cars that you can you can turn up with. And actually, you sort of can't be judged in a way or in some ways you can be. Uh, you know, you could be a very rich person, you know, rather like you, David. Or you could be or you could be, you know, a, you know, a, a working class scoundrel like me from from the London area. And uh, if you just turned up in the car and we didn't open our mouths, you would you would think, well, yeah, he could be he could be posh. He could be not because uh, he's in a you know a, a car which which defies categor- categorization and that's something that certainly happened with the with the mini first because uh, the mini was quite cheap to buy um, even though it shouldn't have been uh, in the ni- in the early sixties which meant that um, celebrities bought it and and racing drivers bought it and um that meant that yeah you you could turn up in that and you you could be someone who just bought it because it was cheap or you could be someone who mm. bought it because it was a good car yeah um so yeah the mini and that went on and on and that was used very effectively through the advertising as well when you had twiggy and you had um uh, spike milligan and people like that doing um ads for it um but uh, yeah i mean that I, I would say is the most obvious example and then the most second uh, obvious example would be a land rover because yeah you could be the landed gentry um or you could just be a farmer palmer who uh, you know just about you know um keeps his um, small holding going but um uh yeah if you've got if you've got an and it is specifically an older land rover we're not talking range rovers at all uh and we may not even be talking about certain defenders if you if you have a pimped up defender i don't i don't think you're classless mm. i know you may disagree with that david but uh yeah if you've got something like a a ratty Defender or a ratty Series Three or Two A or something like that, um, then yeah, uh, it's a car where you could turn up for anything and they and they wouldn't turn you away, which is which is quite significant. Hmm.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely, James. Yeah, <laughs> uh, got a couple of ones I would like to put forward. Yeah. Um, if you live in a warm place and, and especially near yeah. the Mediterranean, if you are in your report, the Citroen Miari, uh, yeah, that's a very classless car. I mm, think It could yeah. be used by someone who's got a boat, um, just a small business, or just someone who likes an open car. Because it's, it's a brilliant car for the for the right climate. It really is. Then you've got the Volkswagen Golf. Um, not my favorite car, from being honest, but obviously in the eighties, it really mm. um, hit its stride. I think, and it was be- beloved by more than just the Chelsea set. You know, it was very popular. It was the Sloan Rangers, but it was also very popular. Uh, across the spectrum of society you might say, it was a very popular Mm. car I just never got the invitation to the party that was all uh, I would have said the Matra Rancho but I suspect people might, if you bought one of those people might think, ah, is it because you couldn't afford a Range Rover? Yeah, even though it wasn't that much cheaper than the Range Rover, <laughs> no. um, but they, yeah, there's a couple more. Just look at this. Um, I've written down the MX5, but I think that's clueless rather than classless. All oh, right, I had to say it. It's all right, <laughs> got to get the digs in. That's it. Um, one I think might have been classless, but never came here. Would be the Mark One Renault Twingo, a fun, funky little city car. Uh, I've right. seen that appealing across a spectrum as well. And the last one, and I may be wrong about this. Um, I probably am wrong about this was a Reliant Scimitar, GTE. Mm. Um, obviously, a certain member of the Royal Family has had about eight of them, but um, in fact, we'll scratch that because it's rubbish. That's not classless at all. It's, <clears throat> it's quite a classy car. There are various uh, cars whose owners can't easily be categorised just on site. Obviously, to you've said the Mini, the, the old Land Rover, that's the Miari and the Twingo. That's four, That's right.
0: but, but listeners... Yeah, I mean, um, I'd also yeah. say, yeah, I mean, uh, I actually had the Twingo written down as well because that that always looks very mm. good uh, in whatever European ca- capital you happen to yeah. be in, um, especially if it's been booted about a bit. But it, it is also the case with little Fiat's as well. Um, so a Fiat 500, um, it certainly falls into that, and uh, Fiat Pandas as well. Ah, and yeah, the Fiat straight. Panda.
1: Mm. Yes, uh, we, should, we should do that in the show sometime on the podcast. Yeah. We should do Sorry, we should do that in the podcast sometime. Um, lots of stories to be told about the Fiat Panda and the Seat Panda as well, actually. There's a story mm-hmm. about it, but we'll leave that for another day. Um, what i say is, this is addressed really to the listeners, if you can think of any other cars that, you know, to your mind are classless, let us know. We'd love to hear from you about it, and we'd be happy to discuss and debate those uh, in the forthcoming podcast. So do let us know. Anyway, moving on from that. Well, so I'll go back to slightly... Uh, grimier times, that's the 1970s, to look at motoring 1970s style. It was a decade, James, uh, obviously of flared trousers, glam rock, punk rock, disco, a decade really of grime and glitz. And in that time, motoring really went quite, I think, a substantial revolution. Lots have happened in it. Um, I'll give you a couple of things and then obviously fire back. One is obviously in that decade, we devised Ford the dominant position in the UK market, and you know the corresponding fall of um, BLMC, then British Leyland, and obviously Chrysler UK, Chrysler Europe went, and Citroën as well uh, was absorbed, both being absorbed into the Peugeot Empire. So that's, in itself, that's quite a, a big change. So that's one thing, but what, what can you think of from that period?
0: Uh, well, for me, David, um, the nineteen seventies is, okay. is basically last week, um, really. Oh, <laughs> it seems so. It seems so so very close to me. Uh, whereas, if you ask me to, to ponder the, you know, the two thousands, I, I sort of struggle a bit, really. But uh, yeah, the nineteen seventies is, is 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 crystal clear to me, um, and it was a very interesting time because there just seemed to be. Uh, well, there's, um, there are classes of cars uh, from that era which we don't have anymore. Uh, I mean, it is two door mm. saloons, yeah. you know, and I know I know they went on for a bit, but that was that was still a thing, wasn't it? And also, two door estates was uh, another sort of um, sub genre, wasn't it? That uh, um, seems to have gone gone away. And yet, there were some very classy little cars uh, which would fall into that c- category. And there were some Fiat's, and uh, I think there was even an Alpha, wasn't there? An Alpha Sud. Uh, which you could get. I, I can't remember whether it came here um as a two door estate. Uh
1: don't know is a short answer. Um, mm-hmm. you know and I should know. So that's uh, I was just going back to my head with a lump of wood. Hang on. Oh yeah that's it sorted out now yes. Uh, I still don't remember unfortunately. No. But yeah um <laughs> you're right there were lots of interesting cars and lots of types of cars that we just don't see anymore. Um any estate car nowadays is rare let alone, you know, two-door. It is, yeah. And of course, tudor two-door became known to, in poor circles, as the, the shooting brake, James, mm. yep. there. Yeah. Shooting brake. But, yeah, in the 70s, uh, it was a decade, obviously, of rust. We know all that. Yeah. Um, but I also saw the rise of Volkswagen, because when they started the decade, um, they weren't really producing even water-cooled cars. It was The the K70 came along, was the first one, mm. which they acquired from NSU. And within a few years, they produced the Polo, the Scirocco, the Passat, and the Gulf, um, and really revolutionized you know, their status and their position in the market. Within really half a decade, it was quite remarkable to behold. Um, I don't really remember that, but looking back, you know, you think it is quite a remarkable transformation in a company's fortunes. They hit on a certain recipe, it was a good recipe, and they took full advantage of it. It was also a decade that the GTI uh, came into being, uh, or the hot hatch, shall we say, and the first hot hatch really wasn't the Golf GTI, James, was it? Uh, no, I, no, I don't. I don't think it was, David. It wasn't. No, it. it was. It was the Simca 1100 Ti. It was more of a warm hatch uh, than a hot hatch, but it was there first. Uh, it wasn't a patch in the Golf GTI. Let's be honest, and it opened the door very slightly to a market, and then the Golf GTI kicked that door in. And uh, but Simca was there first. Um, also, the seventies, the decade of it was energy crisis. We'd, Lots of strikes, for rising fuel prices. It all really stemmed from um, fallout from the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And that a lot of manufacturers really struggled because um, petrol prices went up so much uh, in the wake of that that, um, that gas-guzzling cars weren't sold. And they just couldn't sell them. Uh, people were buying smaller cars. Sports cars really fell out of favour for a time. And even though you had great cars then with v- V8 and V12 engines – That probably marked the the beginning of the end for them. It was a long, slow death, but nonetheless, I think that's when it started. And we also had, in the 70s, the advent of the turbocharger, in European terms anyway, with the 2002 turbo, and then later the Saab 99 turbo. And towards the end of the decade, uh, Renault started to get in the act as well. All great cars. And the final thing I'd say about it, if you're looking at that decade, is the rise of the Japanese motor industry in European terms. At that time, they were uh, subject to import tariffs. They couldn't build or bring in too many cars to Europe. It's not that they made great cars, James, either, but they made cars that were reliable, they were competitively priced, and the Americans would say, and certainly by 70 standards, they were fully loaded. And uh, it took European manufacturers a while to catch up with that. And in some cases, they never did.
0: No, I don't think. I don't think an awful lot. Of, lot of them did, um, but uh, I can highly recommend um, uh, the British car industry. Our, our part in its downfall, if you uh, <laughs> like a, if you like a detailed explanation of what went on in the seventies. Uh, who wrote that? I have no idea, David. But you know, you never know. Oh, just
1: some plonker probably. Yeah, yeah
0: wasn't absolutely. you? Was it James? <laughs> no, no way. No, 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 no,
1: no, no, no. 70s was also time a time when ZZ Top, or ZZ Top, as you're fond of calling them, <laughs> started to um, come and enjoy some success. And unfortunately, this week, we've seen the passing of the bass guitarist, Dusty Hill. Um, a bit of a, not so much a car man, but uh, Billy Gibbons was a great fan of Hot Rods, his bandmate. The world's a poorer place for, for Dusty Hill passing, I think, at Bangles and Classics We'd just like to record that. Absolutely. And uh, on that note, we'll, move, we'll take a break now and move on to something else. Yeah. This is Bangers and Classics, home of more banter than you can shake a gearstick at. Plus, there were fun contests, and coming soon, some really very chaotic, or is that chaotic, quests. So yeah, James, obviously the 1970s, yeah. uh, was we've covered that. Uh, the previous decade, though, saw man go into space for the first time. Or human beings, shall we say, go into space for the first mm. time. And uh certainly the American astronauts, the, the early ones at least, were big car fans, and in particular, many of them were fans of the Chevrolet Corvette. And I believe that's something you know a little bit about.
0: Well, I think you know more than me, David. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, but I, was aware of this story. Um, in that, um, what it basically, um, you know, amounts to is uh, a fantastic uh, dealership initiative. To mm. um, you know, it's a it's a very cheap way of uh, promoting your car by giving an astronaut um, one of one of one of yours to drive around in. Yeah. Um, That's right,
1: um, Anyway, yeah, James. So, yeah, it was a dealer hmm. initiative. Um, there's a <coughs> book by Tom Wolfe called The yeah. Right Stuff, which later made into a film. Yes. Um, both are great. Listeners, seek out this book. It's called The Right Stuff. It's about the original Mercury Astronauts. It's a terrific read. Buy it. That's all I'm saying. Buy the book because it really is great stuff. But going back to the astronauts, James, um, one of them actually had a Corvette long before the dealer initiative. that was Alan Shepard, who was the first American in space. Uh, He owned a succession of Corvettes, and um, I think he had a 57 Corvette at the time he uh, joined the Mercury program. But the dealer you mentioned was a chap called Jim Rathman, who won uh, a round of the Formula One World Championship without actually driving in a Formula One race. And the reason for that is he won the Indianapolis 500, which at that time was a round of the World Championship, even though it wasn't run to F1 rules. He won it in 1960. And he shortly after started up his own uh, dealership in Florida.
0: It, it may be hard uh, for people to uh, understand just you, sort of what superstars these men were, because mm. they were test pilots. Uh, some of them, uh, I uh, had certainly fought in the in the Korean War. Uh, I don't know whether any of them were World World War Two. I don't think they were, but um. they were just incredibly uh, brave uh, chaps who. Um, sort of stared face, uh, stares, uh, stared death in the face, really, mm. um, for uh, the benefit of humankind, really. Um, yeah. You know, they they actually took on feats which is actually quite hard to comprehend these days. I mean, w- when you look at um, yeah. some of the people going into space now, um, you know, uh, people who own retail outlets, uh, it's really, <laughs> it, it really isn't the same, is it? No, um, uh, They really were pushing the envelope. So um, when they were down on earth, um, I, what they needed was an exciting car and actually a Corvette. And that goes right back to to the original one was actually a very exciting car to drive. Yeah, very powerful. But obviously being an American car, it was very good value mm. uh, as well because they weren't paid a fortune. I mean, they, you know, they basically worked for the Air Force. Um, but But really uh s- s- spaceman as as they were just um were you know the uh, you know the term um, hero is is way overused now uh but but they really were because uh, when when they went up in these rockets there, there wasn't there wasn't a guarantee that they were ever going to come down and uh, send yeah. to be on top top of a mer- and they, and in fact many didn't um, and if you think about it, yeah, they were on top of uh, an intergalactic missile, weren't, weren't they? Yeah,
1: they were on top of an ICBM, basically. Yeah,
0: yeah that's it. Um, yeah. yeah. But then the mission, um, the there were
1: seven astronauts originally for the Mercury program. One of them wasn't allowed to fly, as it turned out. He had a slight uh, defect with his heart. He did, however, later on, many years later, get to go up on the space shuttle mission. So, you know, he, he got to do it eventually because mm. he stayed on with NASA. But as you say, a lot of these guys were test pilots. They weren't actually the cream of the test pilot uh, fleet, as it were. Some of the most famous guys weren't considered. One or two of them uh, weren't actually uh, military personnel. Um, I think Scott Crossfield was one of the foremost early test pilots. He couldn't go. He wasn't an employee of the Air Force or the Navy or whatever. And Chuck Yeager, who was Mm -hmm. the man who broke the SEM barrier, um, you know, absolutely the cream of test pilots. Uh, He couldn't go. He wasn't eligible because he hadn't been to college. He'd went, to, he'd went to World War II instead. Yes. And, uh, you know, he didn't go to college. He stayed in the Air Force, and he became a legend. And in his case, rightly so. I mean, he broke the sound barrier with cracked ribs, for goodness sake, um, which was a remarkably brave thing to do. But as you used to say, they sat on top of these rockets, and they did a lot of failures, uh, the American space program, with the rockets. A lot of them had blown up, and... Um, you know, so it wasn't just a question of sitting there uh, having a nice, easy, comfortable ride into space and back. It was really fraught with danger, and so it took a certain type of guy to do that. And most of them loved cars. Most of them loved rat racing away from away from their day jobs as pilots and then obviously astronauts. And this deal that was brokered uh, basically saw many of them uh, get into new Corvettes. Um, one of the exceptions was uh, John Glenn, who became a quite a famous chap, he went to politics after the astronaut program, after his role in it finished. Uh, He chose a station wagon instead, being a family man. Uh, He wasn't interested in sports cars. But the rest of them pretty much were and uh, they made full use of them. Um, But later on, the, the program continued and Apollo 12, the three astronauts in it, uh, all got identical 1969 Corvettes from this dealer. There's a famous photo uh, of them, uh, of the three identical cars with the astronauts sitting on them. And, you know, why not? You're risking your lives. You might as well get a nice freebie out of it because they weren't paid massive sums of money. Um, certainly the lifestyles they enjoyed were nothing like a premiership footballer's lifestyle nowadays. And, uh, yeah, so I think they earned, they earned the right to get a free car or two. Out of it. Um, if you watch the film Apollo 13 as well, you'll see the Tom Hanks character Jim Lovell, and there's a scene in which he's driving his Corvette. Uh, he had won as well. Um, the deal ended 1971, um, and that's because I think interest in the Apollo program uh, was, was coming was being lost at that time. You know, people were getting blase. Oh yeah, we've been to them moon. We've put men in the moon. So what? Um, and of course, Vietnam was raging, so there's other things to occupy them. But for a period, uh, these guys were well, not only um, going out into space, but on the ground, they were driving uh, muscle cars that they got for free and driving them with some considerable abandon. And it's, it's a time, again, it's never going to be repeated, James, is it? This is, no. this is it. It's, it's a moment mm-hmm. in history. And it's, it's appropriate, of course, that these guys who were Americans drove an American car. In Russia, the first man in space was Yuri Gagarin. Mm. Um, and he, of course, was absolutely no less brave than the Americans. And, he uh, unfortunately lost his life in an air crash some years later, but he was given a sports car, not by Russia, uh, but by France. They gave him a Jet, which he was pictured in in Moscow. He didn't drive the car around much because being a, a very humble sort of chap, um, he felt it was a bit ostentatious to be driving around in the Soviet bloc in you know a nice European sports car. Um, but the car still exists somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure where it's believed to be in a private collection, but uh, that's one car that if you're really into the space program, that would be the one to have, I think, James, if you were a collector. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, The car that was driven by Gagarin. Anyway, so we've done space. Uh, we've done inner space. We've done outer space. Um, what can we do next? What have I done with my notes? <laughs> nah, I'm just making this up to go along. Uh, we have one more thing we're going to touch on quickly, I yeah. think. And that was car manufacturers who do other things apart from make cars. Now, there's a long list of them, uh, but I thought we could maybe concentrate on some of the lesser-known ones. And Colin Chapman and Lotus, obviously Colin Chapman and Lotus, both very well-known. But how many people know that Colin Chapman uh, also owned a a boat-making company called JCL Marine, who made Moonraker Boats. He acquired it in 1971, and a lot of Lotus personnel worked there. And Chapman introduced... Some Of the ideas he had from the car business, including the very process used in fiberglass bodies to boat hulls, yeah, um, didn't last long. The company went to voluntary liquidation whilst Chapman was still alive. So, we've done Lotus James. Anyone else you can think of?
0: Um, no, because uh, I do agree with you that the, that the smaller stories are far more interesting than the larger ones because uh, it's quite easy to go down the r- route of uh Hyundai who, who basically build everything mm. uh, on the planet in Korea, uh, Daewoo Korea as well before them yeah Daewoo as well absolutely yeah, um yeah um and Peugeot actually uh, uh built some strange stuff as well didn't they uh kitchen, utens- kitchen utensils and stuff um uh, for some time and uh, I think then you can go into Wolsey uh, didn't they do uh, uh farming equipment and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. um uh, but you know Lamborghini the, the Lam- yeah, absolutely yeah um, Lam- yeah,
1: and you can still buy a Lamborghini tractor to this day
0: you certainly can um, but yeah as, as we were talking about jet aircraft obviously the most famous one would be Saab so uh, Saab for for many years uh, made great play on the fact that uh, they made cars and they made you did uh, jet aircraft mm.
1: think they weren't the only car companies to do that Matra, mm. uh was involved in aerospace and defence before car manufacturing And then one of the cars after one of the missiles, the M530. But they also went into publishing and telecommunications. Now, I remember going to France in the 90s once and finding a Matra phone in my hotel room. uh, (laughs) Since I was going to a Matra event, that that was pretty cool, I thought. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, the the car company went. The Matra still exists and it's still involved in the world of publishing. You won't find its name there. It's known as Hachette in publishing. um, I believe the defence side of it, the aerospace side of it, did merge with other people uh, over time. They really started out doing something else and moved into cars almost by accident. Then, of course, you had
0: the
1: the big man himself, John Z. DeLorean. Yeah. Uh, Now, there's a couple of great books about John DeLorean from back in the day. One is Hillel Levin's book, which I think is called The Grand Illusion and the second one is by Fallon and Strode, and I think it's called Dreamcatcher, uh, Dream Chaser I think it is, I should have checked that because I've got a copy somewhere uh, written back in the 80s um, really before DeLorean's court case was all resolved etc, the f- they're both fascinating reads, if you can get hold of a copy, please do so, uh, we're always saying in this podcast about reading books, uh, these two books are very two very good reasons why we say that, because they're excellent however, one of the stories in both books is about John DeLorean uh, not just being satisfied with having a car company, he also bought a company that made Snowcats. That was Logan Manufacturing. He bought that in 1978, You know, a little while before the DMC-12 came along, and he later rebranded Logan Manufacturing as LMC. The car company was DMC. Well, if you read the books, uh, his period of ownership was fairly controversial in some respects. So I'll leave it at that, because I don't want to spoil the books. But uh, so his interest in Logan lasted rather longer than his interest in car manufacturing. But, yeah, there's lots of other examples of that. If you can think of any guys, please let us know, and we'll be happy to discuss them on the podcast. Right, Mr. Ruppet, is there any other business for this week? Have you we got any other examples of car companies or anything you want to say? Yeah, there's one more thing, James, for this week's podcast. we we'll rattle through this. Um, we'll finish on a bit of a higher note than John DeLorean. And that is, if you remember, again, this goes back to the 70s. It's that mm. decade again. Yeah. You remember hustler, don't you, James? And the, I am not talking about the adult magazine.
0: Uh, well, I'm like... familiar. I'm familiar with many things, um, but <laughs> yeah. uh, strangely enough, uh, a friend of mine who who actually specialised uh, in minis uh, in the uh, early 90s actually did have one of those, and ah. also, yeah, so I did have access. I must send you a picture of um, right. uh, that I uh, yeah. had experience of. But basically, yeah, it was a, basically a greenhouse mini. I would describe it as.
1: Hmm. I like it. I mean, if you're wondering what we're talking about, it's a car called The Hustler. It was designed by William Towns, who, uh, amongst his other claims to fame, he did various things, Uh, worked for Aston Martin as a stylist for a while and was responsible for the Lagonda and the Bulldog and went on to do, as I say, I think the the Reliant Cemetery, was it the SS1 or was it the SST he did? And the project called The Railton that never got off the ground, but there's various things Towns did. Uh, He died at a tragically young age Thinking just in his 50s, mm. but he certainly left behind an interesting body of work. And one of the things he left behind was the Hustler, it was a kit car, as you say, James Mini based, came out in 1978, it had very, very angular uh, two box styling, and it was kind of a sloping front followed by a, <laughs> a sort of cube or a rectangle on top of mini subframes. Um, it sounds terrible, but it, it isn't terrible, it's great. Uh, the side windows. Uh, also doubled the store as you slid them and you could I don't know what version your friend had but you could get it in a four wheel version and a six wheel version. Now, how many cars can you say that about?
0: Virtually nil.
1: Yeah, virtually nil. He also brought out a wooden version, uh, using marine ply. And that came along later. I think it was called the Hustler in Wood. And I'd be surprised if the blurb didn't say, finally it's a car that grows on trees, you know? So that was that. <laughs> Uh, he did. There was a one-box version as well. You know, the, the I suppose the quintessential MPV shape came along. It was a, called the Hustler Holiday, and uh, that came along sometime in the eighties. But there also was one. forgetting minis. This one it was a Highlander six with six wheels. Had a five-point-three-liter Jaguar V12 in it. That would have been quite something to drive, I reckon. Goodness me! Yeah, I could just see you driving that, James. Thank you very much. Oh, I, I could. I think, I think that would fit with you perfectly. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, you'd, you'd probably, I'd probably be hitchhiking there, you know, covered in water, looking bedraggled, and you drive past me, and you're five point three liter hustler holiday, um, you know, so sort of looking down, and saying, ah, oik.
0: But I mean, would we would we consider that David as a classless car?
1: Well, you see, there's the thing. The hustler could be a classless car, mm. I think. It's that kind of vehicle. It's it's an enthusiast car, I think. It's yeah. It's a it's a vehicle for people who maybe who like style, maybe who like design. Um, but as a as a city car, or a town car, pretty practical. Maybe you wouldn't want to be an accident one. That's the only thing. But uh, you know, used within certain parameters, uh, yeah, I think it'd be a good car, and I think it would be classless. There were something like five hundred of them made. Production seems to have ended sometime in the eighties, uh, late eighties. Uh, there are still some around today, and it's actually a video on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember the, name of the chat actually driving one, and uh, it looked it looked a hoot to drive as well. This looked this looked great fun. So if anyone wants to know what to, if anyone wants to know what to buy me for Christmas, you can buy me a hustler, and I don't be in the magazine. My <laughs> wife would kill me. Yeah. Anyway, I um, think on that note, and that fairly upbeat note for a change. Yeah. Uh, will call it a day for this week. So thank you again, Mr. Ruppert, and thank you all for listening.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a goodbye from me. I'm still waiting for the exhaust pipe from uh, Poland.
1: Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's an exhausting process, James. It is, very much so. That's it, oh, yes. Oh, oh, oh. I know, it's shocking. Right, take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.